Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we are in the middle of a series this summer. Actually, we've been doing this since just after Easter, going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're trying to make our way through the entire book, but, but because it's going to take us so long, we've kind of divided it up into mini-series. And so we're looking at uh, the, the middle portion of the Gospel of Matthew and a lot of the narratives there and asking the question, what does it look like for us to live as disciples of Jesus? And so that's the question that's before us. Today we come to a passage in Matthew chapter 15, and then moving into chapter 16, we're going to skip a little bit in there and piece it all together. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to. Uh, If not, don't worry, we have it printed for you in the worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read together from Matthew chapter 15, beginning verse 21, and then going through chapter 16, verse 12. So let's read together. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread to send in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves? For the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is God's word. Uh, We've been talking about Christian discipleship, and so we come this morning to this passage of Scripture, and what we see here is that Christian discipleship The metaphor Jesus uses or has been using with us, it it means that you yoke yourself to Jesus, that you tie yourself to him. Remember Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, he says. So 
you tie yourself to him. And he begins to live his life through you. That's what we've been seeing in, this, in, in the Bible and in this portion of Matthew. So you're resourced by him. His power and his authority begin to flow from him into you and then through you into your work. That's what we've, that's what we've been talking about. So it's not so much about your power, your wisdom, your strength, your good works, your sufficiency. It's his power, his strength in, working in and through you. His spirit energizing you and bearing fruit in you. That's the gospel. And that means that the power source for discipleship is not your will. You see, that's religion. Religion tells you to work really hard and do all the right things and follow all the rules and all this stuff, but it's about what you do. But the gospel is completely different. In the gospel, the power source is not your will. The power source is faith. The way the power of the Spirit comes, look at Galatians 3 again, in your worship folder, is through faith. Faith unleashes Jesus' authority. Because faith goes outside of you. Faith reaches outside of you and it connects you to Him. That's what it does. And so faith is how you get connected to Jesus so that His life and His authority and His power can begin to come into you and energize you to obedience. Not your spiritual resume or your moral record or how beautiful you are or how smart you are or how much money you have. Faith. Now we've seen this over and over again in Matthew's Gospel. For example, here... In the story of the Canaanite woman, in the first little bit up there, Jesus says in verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And I realize how problematic uh, that can be for our theological systems, but there it is. I mean, it was the woman's faith that moves Jesus to action. She even disagrees with him. I mean, it's not there. You can't really, you have to really look to the original language to see it. But she's so bold in her faith. And faith is really the theme that connects the different scenes in this portion of Matthew's gospel. Jesus commends, on one hand, the Canaanite woman for her great faith, Matthew fifteen twenty-eight, And then, later in the passage, he rebukes uh, the disciples explicitly and the Pharisees implicitly for their little faith, Matthew 6, 8. So faith brings the woman in contact with Jesus so that his power can you know, come into her life. Her daughter is healed, and it's the little faith of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the disciples that keep them removed from him. And so, this is the issue we have to deal with this morning. This issue of faith. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. But it, that is still a little vague. And so my work this morning is to try to clear things up for us as we think about this. And so we're going to talk about faith just under these three headings this morning. So you, and they, they correspond with the three points in your outline as normal. But these three things about faith. Why is it required of us? Number two, how does it work? And then number three, how do we grow in it? So just those three questions. Number one, why is, why is faith required of us? Number two, what is faith or how does faith work? And then thirdly, how do we grow in faith if it's so crucial to following him faithfully? So let's just start here with this question. Why is faith the power source for discipleship? Why does God require faith? Now, if you read carefully... One of the things you observe in the Gospels is that those who follow Jesus are always getting themselves in over their heads. You know, uh, following Jesus seems to lead people to a crisis of faith. And I, you know, I just ask the question, why does Jesus do things this way? He tells them to get into the boat on a stormy night, right? He, he turns to them when the thousands of people are there and looking for food and says, you feed them. He sends the twelve out, as we've seen already, to preach and teach and heal And he makes sure that they realize that it's going to be really hard and they're going to face persecution and suffering. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that it seems as if Jesus intentionally leads those 
who follow him into a crisis of faith. They're constantly having to deal and deal with and face overwhelming circumstances that require more of them than they have to give. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, but you're thinking about becoming one, I mean, we just, you have to make sense of this. That if you choose to follow Jesus, you should expect the same thing. But why? Why does it have to work this way? And the reason, I think, as we see from this passage, is that Jesus knows that we live like the disciples and the Pharisees with a little faith, and he's trying to develop in us the great faith of the Canaanite woman. And here's what I mean by that. That all of us, every single one of us in this room, are more inclined to boasting than we are to faith. And here's what I mean by that. The word boast in the Bible has roots uh, in a practice that's been around for centuries, and I know it's a man illustration, so forgive me, ladies, but you know, if you, but some of you might be into, you know, if you've ever seen Braveheart or or some war movie that's just really gory, and there, you know, all the, the the armies line up for battle against one another, and they've come, and it's pretty obvious they're they're going into this battle, and most of them probably will not come back. And so they're trying to find courage. Or if you remember Braveheart, you know, all the guys, we're not fighting for these guys. We're not, you know, and then all of a sudden here comes William, William Wallace riding up on the horse with his face painted blue, which is just weird. I don't know where they got the dye to do that back in the 14th century. But, you know, however that all works. And then somebody stands up and they start to, they start to kind of, you know, oh, we are men. We can, you know, we can chart or whatever they do. And they begin to, we're going to tear them to pieces. And we're just, we're going to go in there and we're going to just, rip their hearts out, you know, and feed them to our dogs or whatever it is, you know, whatever they might say. That's pretty gross, but, you know. Uh, that is a boast. That, that's a ritual boast. It, it, a ritual boast is, you know, before the battle, we can do this. We can get it done. We're strong enough. We're good enough. But the scripture says that we are more inclined, our hearts are more inclined to this kind of boasting than they are to faith. And that means this, that the problem with every human heart is, is, you look to your beauty, or you look to your wealth, or you look to your status, or you look to your talent. You look to your achievements and you say, I did that. And the reason we do this is because every heart looks to something to give it a sense of security and confidence, because we need that. That every heart finds something, either money or a moral record or some sort of status, and and it says, that's mine. I'm strong enough. See, that's mine. I can do this. And that's what Jeremiah means. I mean, that Jeremiah passage to me I mean, is so powerful for me. When, when Jeremiah says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. I mean, that's boasting. It's turning to your own wisdom or to your own strength or to your own moral record and relying on it and trusting in it to save you. Making flesh your strength, as Jeremiah says. And what happens when we do this is that our hearts turn away from God. I mean, that, you know, that's what the prophet says. We begin to value and make much of earthly things, and Jesus' power and his compassion and his mercy and his love for us begin to matter very little. And that's what it means to live with a little faith. And the sad thing is, Jeremiah says, if you make flesh your strength, you will be like a shrub in the middle of the desert. That's what your life will feel like, parched and dry and withering. But if you follow Jesus, here's what happens. Jesus is going to orchestrate one crisis of faith after another in your life because... We've said this over and over again. Jesus is committed to making you helpless. He's committed to making you helpless because he wants to teach all of us to live by faith and the only way he can do that is to make us weak to prove how the flesh fails. That money can't save us. Talent can't save us. Social connections can't save us. Moral achievements can't save us. You see, Jesus wants 
to take our weakness and our sin and he wants us to take those things and to turn to him in faith. And the person who lives like that, the prophet says, is like a tree planted by water that lives completely unafraid, void of any anxiety, healthy and strong and fruitful because that heart has found the source of real confidence and security. I mean, money can't save you, but Jesus can. Power and influence can't provide for you, but Jesus can. And really, what we see in the way, all the way that Jesus deals with this is this is just the way the gospel works. I mean, this is just the gospel being fleshed out. In the gospel, you know, you are asked to meet a standard that you can't possibly meet. You are required to perform an obedience that that is beyond your strength. God's law makes demands upon you that you are incapable of meeting. So what do you do? Well, some of us just keep trying. But Paul says in Galatians that no, no one, no one is justified by the works of the law. The Spirit doesn't come... Through the works of the law, justification comes by faith. The power of the Spirit comes by faith. You become a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, when you stop trying to earn your salvation through your own obedience, and when you stop relying upon your own strength, and you stop looking to your own record, and in faith, you look to Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. This is the way the gospel, this is just the way the gospel works. You don't become a Christian by being good or following all the rules. You become a Christian through faith. And what the gospel dares to claim, what it dares to claim is that if you put your faith in Jesus, then you get the acclaim and the approval and the affirmation of God. Because of Jesus' record of righteousness that's credited to you. And that's the confidence, that's the security, that's the assurance that your heart really needs. You see, that's why faith has got to be there. Because the only way to really be confident, the only way to really be secure is to figure out that you've got to go be out, go outside of yourself and to look to Jesus. And in Jesus you get the Father's approval and that's the confidence and the security your heart really needs. But let's keep moving. You see at the beginning of the Christian life, as you become a Christian, and throughout the Christian life there has to be faith. There's no way around it. You can't live as the disciple of Jesus without faith. And so we not only need to just establish that, we need to see what faith is and how it works. And there are three things that you learn here from uh, <clears throat> the contrast between the Canaanite woman and the Pharisees. And so let's just spend some time kind of contrasting them in these three things. And we see, you'll see there in your outline first, faith begins with knowing your need. Begins with knowing your need. And that's why Jesus is committed to making us helpless, because you can't have faith until you first feel your need. So look at the Canaanite woman with me for a minute up there at the top of your page. Um, How does she get Jesus' attention? Verse 22. You see that? O Lord, son of David, my daughter, is severely oppressed by demon. And then she goes on, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She, She cries out, we're told there. And the verb tense tells us that it was a continual cry. She's doing it over and over again. There's this, there's this crying out. So much so, it literally means shouts. She's shouting. So over and over again she's shouting, and, and so much so that the disciples get annoyed. Do you see that? It's pretty funny. Uh, they, 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 please, would you, I mean, my translation of what they turn to Jesus and say, could you please make her be quiet? I mean, you open mouths, maybe you can close them. I don't know what they're thinking, you know. Please shut her up. She's crying out. So she's coming. She's desperate. There's an urgency in her approach to Jesus. She knows her need. And later we're told she falls down in front of him. And there's a posture of complete humility before him. Have mercy. Now contrast her with the Pharisees later in the passage. And from what you know of them in other places in the scripture, they don't know their need. They think they've got it all figured out. (laughs) 
In other parts of the Bible, we're told the Pharisees were arrogant and smug and self-righteous. They're the complete antithesis of this poor woman. But you see, faith, faith, this is how it works. This is how faith works. Faith begins with knowing your need. But there is a second thing about faith that we learn here, and that is that not only is it to know your need, but it's to know your need is beyond you, so that you begin to despair of yourself. You see that? C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he wrote, Salvation is change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. He goes on, he says, I know the words, leave it to God, can be misunderstood, but they must stay for the moment. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ, trust that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion, that Christ will make good his deficiencies. In other words, you not only know your need, but you realize you're completely incapable in and of yourself to meet your need. That's where faith comes from. That's how it works. Remember, this is what Jesus has been talking about all all along throughout Matthew, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. And we define the poor in spirit when we were there as those who know their problems are beyond them. It's a person who knows their problem is beyond them. They know they need help. To be poor in spirit is to be absence of any self-confidence or self-reliance. And so look at the Canaanite woman again. What does she say to Jesus in verse 22? She says, have mercy on me. I mean, in other words, she knows she has nothing to commend herself to him. She's a Canaanite for one thing, which historically was an enemy of the people of Israel. She can make, she knows she, she has no capacity. She can make, she can make no demands upon him. She's up against forces that are beyond her strength. I mean, she's into the demonic. I mean, she knows she's outmatched. She has only one hope, and that is that Jesus would look upon her and have mercy on her and her daughter. She has nothing to boast in. Nothing to boast in. So all that's left is faith. And that's what Jesus responds to. Now again, the Pharisees offer a striking contrast. They're smug and self-confident. They're sure they know all the answers. Jesus, here's the way they approach him in chapter 16. Jesus is the one that must meet their expectations. They demand a sign from him, so they're demanding and hypercritical. In one place in the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about them that they trusted in themselves, that they were righteous. In other words, they didn't despair of themselves. They were proud or boastful of their religious devotion, and they trusted in their good works for their salvation. So that's the opposite of faith. Because faith is knowing your need, and it's knowing your need is beyond you. And then thirdly, a third little component I think we see here about how faith works. Faith is knowing your need, It's knowing your need is beyond you and despairing of yourself, which leads you then to look to Jesus for help. And that's what faith does. Faith looks to Jesus. Faith goes outside of you and looks for help outside in Jesus. One more time. Let's come back to the Canaanite woman. When Matthew reports in verse 25 that she knelt before Jesus, he uses a a very specific word there, proskuneo in the Greek, that was typically reserved to describe worship. In other words, Matthew wants us to see she began to worship him. And that's the essence of faith. See, with a, with living with a little faith, like the Pharisees, is, is a worship problem. It means you've begun to worship something other than Jesus. That, that thing that's at the center of your heart has become your functional savior, the ultimate source of value and beauty to you. That, that's the problem. That thing, whatever it is, begins to dominate your imagination. You become fascinated with it. And so what happens is your fascination is so... Uh, intense that you only see Jesus peripherally. But faith, 
What faith does is faith moves Jesus to the center and it makes him the object of the heart's worship. And it sees, faith sees Jesus as the ultimate object of beauty and value. Faith looks to him and sees everything else with peripheral vision. Faith looks at money or power or influence or the approval of others and then it looks at Jesus and it says, I'm going with Jesus. I mean, that's what faith does. That's how faith works. You know your need. You know your need is beyond you. And you look to Jesus. That's what faith is. So we need it, and that's what it is. And so we need to finish this morning by just asking, then how do we grow in it? And here's where this passage gets really fun to me. Because I, I almost, I, was, I, I anticipated hearing some of you chuckle at the end when Jesus starts to interact with his disciples about this whole idea of them having no bread. Because it really is almost comical. Um, after he fed the 4,000, if you come down to chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and they head for the other side of the lake. And when they got there, the disciples realized they have no bread. They've forgotten to bring bread with them. And so Jesus, as he often does, I mean, I would just have loved to hang out with him because he's always making these cryptic, weird statements. And he issues this strange warning in verse 6. He says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they start just... I mean, they're always confused by the things he says. But here's the conclusion they come to. They think that he's talking about the fact they didn't bring bread along, that he's somehow upset by this, which is just really funny. Uh, but, but there's an interesting metaphor here. The leaven, when he says the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, leaven was part of last week's bread that was added to this week's bread that was supposed to make it rise. It was like a yeast they would use. And so Jesus is using this metaphor about bread, so they assume he's talking about their failure to bring bread with them. But that's not Jesus' point. Leaven is used over and over again in the Bible to describe something that has a sinful, pervasive influence. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, which we read not long ago in our community Bible reading, Paul warns the Corinthians about the sexual immorality in the church. And here's the statement he makes. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now Paul's point is, is if you don't address sin... In the church, no matter how isolated or minimal it might seem, eventually it will negatively affect everything and everybody else. And so the disciples here leaven. They think Jesus is talking about the bread they've forgotten, but that's not it at all. He's trying to warn them, we learn later in verse 12, about the leaven or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He doesn't want his disciples to be influenced by their hard-heartedness and unbelief. He wants them to have a great faith like the Canaanite woman, not a little faith like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it seems his concerns are well-founded because they're already living with little faith. He says that. He, he rebukes them in verse 8. Oh, you have little faith. They're full. I mean, get this. this is, I mean, this is, so, this is so comical. They are full of anxiety about not having any bread with them. And Jesus has to point out the obvious. I just took a few loaves and some fish and fed 4,000 people. No bread is not an obstacle. You see that? And what he says is, in verse 9, he says the problem is is they've not perceived. You see that in verse 9? He responds to them, do you not yet perceive? They've not perceived the truth about Jesus. They were there when he fed the 5,000. And when he fed the 4,000, they passed out the food. I mean, they were right there in the middle of the miracle, but their anxiety about their current lack shows they don't really understand. They, they've not reasoned out the implications of the miracles they've just witnessed. Uh, a, a pastor in our domination would say it this way, they know, but they don't know. And that's the struggle all of us have. I mean, this is the struggle of faith. Matthew 6 says, don't be anxious about what you'll eat or drink, 
or where. Look at the birds, you know. Look at the flowers. God clothes them. He provides for them. And you're far more valuable to him than they are. Don't be anxious. And I read that and I say, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know all that. But on some level I don't because I'm still anxious. You with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? That God commands me to be generous, but the reason that it's so hard is that I know, but I don't know about Jesus' generosity uh, towards me. The, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, but I'll admit I'm grumpy. And the reason I'm grumpy is that I know, but I don't know about God loves, God's love for me in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is peace and patience, you know, but oftentimes I'm restless and I'm anxious and I'm impatient. Why? Because at some level what's happening is it's like... The, disciples i'm still living in unbelief and this is what jesus is getting at i mean this is just what blows my mind he's saying it's possible to be in the church to read your bible to be listening to sermons all of that stuff and to still not understand at a deep heart level to still not perceive the truths and the implications of the gospel jonathan edwards a great puritan pastor and theologian said there's a difference between the knowledge of something that is just theoretical and the knowledge that consists in what he called A sense on the heart. And so he preached a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. In that sermon, he can be rather technical, but I think this will, I think we can get our minds around this. He said, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense or taste of its sweetness. There's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of that beauty. Now listen to this sentence. He says, the former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. Now here's what he's saying. There's a difference between, you could pull out a map or you could go online and Google the Grand Canyon. You know, you could study all of the contours and have all of the information right, but, that, but it's a completely different experience than going and standing on the edge and taking it in. I mean, you can read, you know, for a lot of people, you can read the Bible and read about Jesus' crucifixion and, and, you know, study it and know all the Greek and figure it all out, know the timeline of when exactly everything happened and have all that in your head and then go to Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and stand there and weep because you feel like it's the first time you really, you really perceived. You see, here the disciples are, they've been walking around with Jesus watching him heal the sick and provide miraculously for people's physical needs, but it hasn't come home to their hearts yet. They still don't understand. He says they still don't perceive. They, they know, but they don't know, and that forces us to ask the question of ourselves, do I have an opinion about the gospel? I mean, is the gospel just hearsay? Is it just theoretical, but it doesn't make any real difference in my emotional life? Is that true of you? Or, Have you gazed at Jesus in such a way that the truth of who he is has been driven home to your heart? And it's beginning to create this great faith, like the faith of the Canaanite woman. John Calvin said once, faith is not a distant view, it's the warm embrace of Jesus Christ. And now what we learn here is that this this, this faith comes, he says, look there in verse 9 again, do you not yet perceive... Do you not remember? You see, here's how the faith comes. Here's how you grow in it. You remember. Jesus says, do you not remember the five loaves or for the 5,000 and how many you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Jesus is saying, I took seven loaves of bread and fed 4,000 people and everybody ate and there were seven baskets full left over just to prove the point about my power and my generosity and my love for you. And you think that your lack of bread is a problem for me? See, they've forgotten. I mean, it's out of their mind. They're suffering from spiritual amnesia. And in the Bible, 
Unbelief and forgetfulness are closely linked to one another. And we suffer from spiritual amnesia too. A lot of times we come to worship on Sunday mornings and hear about the gospel of grace and then we go and we immediately begin to live by 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon as if the gospel isn't true. We come up against hard times financially and we get full of anxiety and it's because we've forgotten all of the ways Jesus has proven faithful to us in the past. And we did this in our house recently. We had a, we were having, you know, a tough, I don't know, day of homeschooling or marriage or whatever it was. And Ashley was just really down. And so I just told her, we're, come to the kitchen table, sit down with me. Here's what we're going to do. We are just going, because we had read this passage in Community Bible Reading, and I said, we're just going to remember. And so all we did is for about 30 minutes in prayer, we just, we just thanked God for every good thing we could think of that he had done in our lives in the 35 years that we've been alive. And the evidence of his faithfulness to us just began to mount. You see what I'm saying? In our, in our, in our emotional reality, God, I mean, you just for 30 minutes just listening, oh God, thank you for life, thank you for breath, thank you for these children, thank you that they're healthy, thank you for our parents, thank you for our house, thank, I mean, and you just be in all of the things that he's done, and then you, then once you build up this case evidence, you look back into the things that were such big problems, and you say, yeah, it's not that big a problem. I mean, see, the faith, to go out in confidence comes from the spiritual discipline of remembering. And this is something God is very interested in us doing, right? Because all the way back in the Old Testament, when the people come out of Egypt, what does he do? He tells them, have a meal, and you're going to celebrate it every year. Why? So that you can remember. When they cross the Jordan River, you know, they take 12 stones and they put a monument on the other side, and, and God says, keep it there. Why? So that you'll remember what I've done. And your children will ask you, and they'll say, what are those stones there for? And you can tell them the story of when I held back the waters of the Jordan. Remember. Rem- he understands that remembering is the heart of what it means to live by faith. And so we celebrate a meal every month together, and we come and we take his body, the bread that is his body, and the, the cup that is his blood, and we do it, why? To remember. Because faith comes from remembering. It comes from that remembrance. And so that gives us a spiritual application, or an application or spiritual discipline as I come to a close that the, the spiritual discipline this ultimately calls us to, if faith is required of us, and if we've seen how it works, and if it comes from remembering, then the, the application or the spiritual discipline that we have to figure out how to put into our lives is we have to learn how to mark God's faithfulness to us. And that's what the Stones of the Jordan were all about. I mean, we obviously still understand this. Go to Washington, D.C. sometime and see all the monuments that are there to help us remember the significant events in our life as a nation. It's why couples getting married exchange rings as Lauren and Josh did yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Timmy tells my wife all the time, this is her way of saying it, you need a personal arsenal. Right? You need a personal arsenal to help you remember and not forget the truth of the gospel. When I preach, I wear this ring that a friend of mine gave me when I, when I married Dean and his wife, and it's in Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew, although I probably should because I went to seminary for that. Sorry, Dad, that's your money hard at work there, but, you know, can't really read it. Um, but it says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And, and because you have to know what a temptation it is for me to evaluate my self-worth based upon your evaluation of how well I do up here. And this ring is on my finger to remind me that I am not a somebody because I do well and I'm not a nobody if I do poorly. I'm a somebody and not a nobody because I am his and he is mine. It's just my way of preaching the gospel to myself. You need a personal arsenal. You need a disciplined way of remembering the truth of the gospel. You see, because when the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign, he tells them that no sign will be given to them. In verse 4, 
except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and there, were, and there was a wicked and rebellious city that God loved called Nineveh. And he told Jonah to go and preach there, but Jonah refused and tried to run away. And you're probably familiar with the story. There was a big fish God sent, and they threw Jonah overboard because the storm was so great. And this fish swallowed Jonah, and he was there in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And after that, he was in many ways brought back to life and went on to Nineveh. The Bible says that God so loved the world as wicked and rebellious as we are that he sent not a prophet but his only son into the world. And just like Jonah, this son, Jesus, would have to die and remain into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and then be resurrected. And that's the only sign you need. That's proof enough of his love. See, faith, faith doesn't come, faith doesn't come by asking for signs. That's unbelief. Faith comes by remembering that God has already given the greatest proof of his love for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what it is. That's how it works. That's why we need it. It comes through remembering. That's why we sing. That's why we preach. That's why we pray. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. uh, To remember. That's why we're here this morning. To remember again the story of our salvation. And so let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you come as we sing this song that is so deeply imprinted upon so many of our hearts. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Would you come and and in in a powerful way, would you take our unbelief and the parts of our hearts that still still don't believe the truth of the gospel, and would you uh, increase our faith? Lord, we, we pray to you this morning, we believe, help our unbelief. And if faith is that crucial, if faith is the power source, if it's the energy source for discipleship and not my own will, then would you increase our faith and would you decrease our will so that we might be more faithful, that we might be um, more ready, that we might bear fruit that would be to your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. <laughs> Amen. There's a place in, the, in the, uh, the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John where they come to him and they ask Jesus, what are the works that we must do to be doing the works of God? And his answer is so great. I keep coming back to it in my own life. He says, here, here, here's the work that God asks of you. Believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in me. I mean, so, so remember, the power source for discipleship is not your own will. It's the power of Jesus that comes into your life and lives itself through you. And the only way you get that is through faith, by looking outside of yourself. So, if it's faith, then our faith is fed by this benediction that we'll, just, that we'll now you know, share together, that I will speak over you. Uh, to help you remember, I pray that these words would reverberate over your life this week as you go about all the things that God has called you to. Hear, hear his voice in these words, offering you the affirmation that only he can give you through uh, the work that his son has done on your behalf. So receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.